Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very, very excited to be back. I am actually more excited to be back this week than I am most weeks, and most weeks I am incredibly excited. The reason I am so excited, it is it's for a lot. We are tackling a really awesome movie that I have a ton to say about. This movie was suggested that we cover in our sort of listener Q&A episode by M from Verbal Diorama, and we are so lucky, we are so fortunate, we actually have M here on the podcast to talk the mummy with us. M, how you doing? Hi, Derek. Hi, Laurel. I'm so excited. I'm so, I can't tell you how excited I am that we're going to be talking the mummy on the Midnight Myth. This is like dream come true level podcasting right now. And I, I, yeah, I'm beyond excited. But thank you for having me. Thank you for having me back because it's been a long time since I've been on. It has been a long time. The last time we had you on was for Labyrinth, which was also a really special team up, a movie that's important to all of us. We ended up announcing our pregnancy on social media via a music video that we made where I played the ukulele and Derek played the bongos and we sang... Uh, magic dance about the babe with the power. And then we're like, we're having a baby. So that that movie has continued to be really important to us. And then we got to join you on your special on all three John Wick movies, which was such a pleasure because we got to go on like the ultimate Keanu, Keanu fan <laughs> podcast and talk about Keanu Reeves. You're much more than a Keanu podcast, but it just felt like we had the privilege of talking about a fabulous Keanu franchise on your show. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, M, for people that are maybe tuning into the Midnight Myth for the first time or they don't know you, give us just your introduction, your bio. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, The Verbal Diorama. So, yeah. So, my podcast is Verbal Diorama, and it's essentially the podcast all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And basically, each episode I take a movie or a couple of movies or sometimes, in the case of John Wick, three movies. And I like to talk about basically how that movie went from conception to completion. 
because I don't think it's very often said how miraculous it is that a movie is made. All of these people coming together, all of these professionals, and how difficult it is to get all of those people working on a project. And whether that project is good or not is kind of subjective because all art is subjective. But it's just a really kind of joyous celebration. I like to think that Verbal Diorama is a joyous celebration of the making of movies. Um, and yeah, that, that's kind of what I like to think. But ultimately, it is a film history podcast. And, um, and The Mummy, I have a very special relationship with The Mummy. The Mummy is, and, and I quote because I, I quote it a lot. In my opinion, The Mummy is the greatest movie ever made. So I am a huge fan of this particular movie. I've covered this movie on my podcast. I've been on other podcasts a lot to talk about this movie. And before we started recording, Laurel said the sweetest thing ever. She, she called me like, like the mummy consultant or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's really You're cool. a professional mummy consultant. Apparently so. Well, I am now. That's literally going in all the verbal diorama biographies. Professional mummy consultant. That should go on your, your business card. Yeah. Yes. Like my resume. Podcast producer, <laughs> professional mummy yes. consultant. Yes. That's me. Well, well, we're huge, huge fans of your podcast. I listen to it. As long as I have seen the movie, I will listen to it every week. Every once in a while, you'll do something I haven't seen. And so then often I will go see the movie just so then I can go back and listen to the verbal diorama about the movie. Well, and just a couple of weeks ago, you did Jason and the Argonauts, which neither of us had seen for like years, decades. We'd seen it as kids, if at all. And we were like, we can't let this episode get out the door with us, like getting our comments on the episode. So we're like, let's find it. Let's stream it. Let's watch this movie. And so that was a joy to like watch that and rejoice in the amazing production and ridiculousness and fabulousness of that film. And especially Harryhausen's animation and then be able to, you know, throw our two cents on your show. Yeah, no, it's, it's genuinely, like I say, I like to find the joy in it. Um, there's yeah. so many people who like bash movies say like they're not very good, all oh, the effects don't look great, whatever. I think it's really easy to be critical about something that you have not made, but it's so much more rewarding and worthwhile to actually look at the positives of a creation that someone has made. And, um, and yeah, that, that's kind of what I like to do. I will kind of say, like, if I'm not keen on something in the movie, I do tend to, you know, mention that. But overall, it's not really a a review podcast. It's not really a critical podcast. It is more of a celebration of film history. And um, yeah, I've um, 157 episodes as of recording this. So not quite as many as The Midnight Myth, but I'm catching up to you guys. <laughs> you are you going are. to catch you up. You are now very that, much catching up. Now that we have a, you know, a 17-month-old running around, you are hot on our heels. <laughs> but I do think that our shows are aligned in that way that like, even though it took us a while to figure out exactly what space we existed in with our relationship to movies, something that we have really tried hard to maintain is that we don't go on our show and bash movies. Even if we're covering something that we don't love or one of us doesn't love, we're like, let's find the richness, let's find you know the, the quality exactly. and let's, let's review this with kindness because we're looking for universal themes. We're looking for history, mythology, and philosophy and a movie's quality is important in that equation, but we're not here to, you know, 
to criticize overly someone's incredibly hard work. We're here to look at things with kindness. I also think in the digital age, it's really easy to be angry online and get engagement. It's the easiest way. The angrier you are, the more divisive you are, the more polarizing you are, the more engagement you get. And I just think that's terrible. I think that's no way to live. I think that's no way to interact if you want to critically engage with a work of art in the world, critically engage in it, but to just tear something down just so that you can get more tweets or relikes or listens or downloads in the attention economy. I am so philosophically against that. To me, it's so much more about celebrating, finding the joy. Oftentimes, Laurel and I will suggest something. This is totally off topic. But, you <laughs> yeah, know, here we go. We have a guest <laughs> of the podcast, so let's just go where we go where maybe it'll be a movie that Laurel doesn't like or a movie that I don't like. And then we give it the midnight myth treatment. And at the end, we have a different appreciation. Even if we haven't really changed where we are. Great example of this is we did Zack Snyder's 300. 300. And I love that movie. And I do not love that movie. (laughs) And it was, but we had such a good time talking about it. We did. Yeah. And it was really, really valuable. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, welcome M. Um, make sure everyone out there you follow M everywhere you can. We will give you some time to do all of your plugs at the end, and then we'll talk the mummy. But before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is, uh, you know, the conversation never begins or ends here on the podcast. We want to engage with you. We want to hear from you. So. If you have thoughts, if you have suggestions on future episodes, if you want to come on our show, hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com and you can find extra blogs and content there. Uh, Derek and I also have spinoff podcasts that we do in our increasingly infinitesimal spare time. Uh, Derek does a spinoff show called The Wheel of Ka with Steve, where they analyze and discuss the entire canon of Stephen King, and they are slowly moving towards the next part of The Stand. I am waiting with bated breath. I can't wait for them to get to the next part of The Stand. Uh, Meanwhile, I recently launched my new show, Sleep and Sorcery, which is available on all podcast platforms and the meditation app, Insight Timer. So if you are an insomniac like like me, or you're just someone who wants to practice more mindfulness, and you're also a fantasy and folklore nerd, check out Sleep and Sorcery. Uh, It's been a lot of fun to produce that, and it's gotten a really wonderful response. So thank you if you've listened. I'll just say for Wheel of Ka fans... We know we owe you an episode just to let you know what's going on. Everybody had babies. (laughs) Steve just had a baby and his daughter, Frankie, who is adorable, has been going through some sleep regression. So he has not been sleeping, which means there's not a lot of mental energy to read Stephen King. And there's not a lot of time. So it slowed us down a little bit. But we are going to get to the stand. We probably also opened a business together. Like we can cut you some slack, but hurry up and do the next episode of the stand because I can't wait. Awesome. So let's go to the briefest of brief recaps. I'm going to keep it even briefer than the briefest of briefs. The Mummy is about an ancient Egyptian priest named Anenhotep. I said that totally wrong. Imhotep. Thank you. Who is sleeping with the Pharaoh's mistress. He gets caught. The Pharaoh's mistress kills himself and he gets mummified and cursed that if he comes back to life because he has some resurrection powers, he would ultimately end all life on earth. We flash forward to the 1920s, I think it is, 
And our heroes are Egyptologists and an old soldier that are stuck in Egypt, not stuck in Egypt, they're in Egypt. They end up resurrecting the mummy. They have to battle him. They battle him. They defeat him. I want to keep it super brief because that was, that was, the, brief. that yeah, was the briefest of briefs. Yeah. The briefest of brief, yeah. briefest of brief recap. Lots of fun things happen. It is an action adventure slash horror movie of an Indiana Jonesian type. Um, it came out in 1999. It is a awesome movie. I saw it in the theater. I don't know. Did you see it in the theater? No. Anne? No. So uh, before we started talking, I, I pointed out the VHS copy. Um, that I have on my shelf behind me. And that was the VHS. Well, maybe not the VHS, but I actually rented it from a VHS rental. And uh, I loved it so much. I rented it several times. And then I bought it from the VHS rental because back in the day, kids, you could go and you could rent VHS tapes. And I think it was like a pound or something for a X rental. And so that's the version that I have behind me uh, is an old... X rental VHS copy of the mummy. I have since obviously bought it on DVD and Blu-ray and all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, I, that is kind of amazing. It's a historical artifact, and it has passed through many hands yes. as it was a rental. Yeah. So perhaps there is a curse upon it of some. Well, kind. I hope it's a good curse. <laughs> <Perhaps>. <laughs> I don't want a bad yeah. one. <laughs> I don't want. Are there blades. good curses? <laughs> would, would would a good curse just be a magic spell? A charm. It'd be a charm. An enchantment. There we go. Anyway. So does, I, I think we all know the answer to this. I saw this movie in the theater with my mom. So my mom and I both went and we saw it. I think it was 1999. I said that before. We had a really good time. My mom and I have always had a connection to movies like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, E.T. She's always been into going to see movies. We saw almost all the Harry Potters and Lord of the Ring movies together. So we've always enjoyed going to the movies together. And sadly, my dad, at some point in his life, decided that if it's not a Turner classic movie, it's bad. And I don't know when that happened, but it happened. And he just decided he would never go to the theater. He would never see a movie in the theater. And if a movie has computer generated graphics, he's going to instantly dislike it. So we saw the trailers for The Mummy and we're like, this looks cool. It looks like Indiana Jones. Let's go see it. We loved it. I have since, I have not seen it since actually. So I watched it in preparation for this podcast. That was the second time I've seen it. Laurel, that was your first time that you've seen it. This was my first time. So I'm very interested in what the experience is of seeing it in 1999 versus seeing it today, particularly because I know that the effects were really revolutionary in the time and of course have aged in the way that a lot of things from 1999 have. But yes, this was my first time seeing it. I was the ripe old age of nine uh, in the year that it was released. And that was, um, I think, a horrible year for movies, right? Nothing good came out that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing good. Nothing good the came worst. out in 1999. The, the worst year for cinema ever. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so this was my first time seeing it and I was, was very excited to finally dig in, uh, pun intended. So I will open this up. Whoever wants to jump in here, does this movie hold up? I mean, you're gonna know, I think you're gonna guess what my answer is because I feel like this is like the ultimate movie for me. Like I say, I genuinely think it's the greatest movie ever made. And I think it is that, I mean, you know, there are Technically, you could say there are some greater movies out there. If you're looking at, I don't know, something like Citizen Kane or The Godfather or something, then technically, yes, you could argue they are better, in inverted commas. 
But the reason why I love this movie so much is this movie has a bit of an unenviable task in that it's not just one genre of movie. There are multiple genres at play in this movie. And, you know, when you take like five different genres, you know, you've got action, you've got adventure, romance, horror, and comedy. And when a movie can use all those genres, sometimes you might find that it will lack in one of those genres because it's not quite balanced enough. It doesn't quite have the skill behind the scenes to effectively balance all of those different genres. But I really do think that this is like the perfect genre mix because it does take five different genres and it uses them all effectively. And when I obviously say horror, I mean, obviously I'm not talking about, you know, serious, you know, you're holding a pillow up to your head kind of horror. Because it's not that. It's a very classic. It's universal monsters. It's a classic horror. It's the sort of horror that I find very palatable because I'm not a fan of horror and I've always said that. But I, I love this movie so much for what it achieves and what it does and what it gives the audience. And it does kind of harken back to those, you know, the pulp cinema of like, of the like the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and like, um, like you mentioned, Derek, the Indiana Jones kind of pulp serial, because it's, it's all kind of related to each other in a way. Indiana Jones obviously um, came first. And in many ways, I've got to credit Indiana Jones for the mummy, because you can't not. Because without um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example, there's just so many parallels between that movie and this movie. And you, you can't not credit Steven Spielberg and um, and you know, the, the way that they set Indiana Jones up. And I, I am a fan of Raiders. I think Raiders is fantastic. And arguably, you could argue technically a better movie than this. But I think that warped so this could run. I know it. Yes, I'm biased. I'm incredibly biased. And I always will be biased towards this movie. But I just think this is so special, not just for what it is, but what it gives us. You know, it gives us a character like Evelyn Carnahan who is a woman and she's in the 1920s. And it was a time when women were literally just there to marry and make babies. And she's an Egyptologist. She's a professional. She's a librarian, for God's sake. You know, she is one of the most important female characters in cinema for what she is and for what she gives us. And she's, she's smart. She's capable. She's forward thinking. She's all of these amazing things. She's not just second fiddle to the men. She's an equal to the men in this story. In many ways, she's more important than the men in this story. And it's something that I think a lot of movies, especially kind of in the 90s, women, and, you know, arguably even now, women are kind of sometimes seen as, you know, they've got to be the wife or the girlfriend, they've got to nag, you know, they've got to be like the beautiful, busty, you know, pin-up girl. And Evie is none of those things. She's beautiful and she's smart and she's funny. and you know, she gets, I'm not going to say the word, she gets stuff done. Let's just say she gets stuff done. And to me, Evie is one of the most important characters in all of cinema, mainly because she's a woman and the situation that she's in and the, the era that she's in, but also the fact that ultimately this is a story about love. It's, it just kind of all boils down to love. And it's literally just the story of a boy and a girl who love each other. And that boy and that girl are Imhotep and Anaxanamu. They love each other so much. They love each other beyond death. 
for all of these decades, for like 3,000 years, they still love each other. He still loves her so much. All he wants to do is bring his old girlfriend back from the dead. And ultimately, I think that's a story anyone who's loved someone can relate to. And there we go. That's my piece on the mummy. Love it. Yeah, I honestly, I think that was extremely well said. And there is a lot that I have to say about Evie because I very much agree with you. I think she's an extraordinary character and an extraordinary example of womanhood in cinema cinema and especially in action adventure cinema. I think the fact that um, that she is feminine and that she is bookish, that she is this sort of like Belle Beauty and the Beast model of woman and she is the lead character in this action adventure film is really interesting and is really a different take. It's like, we're gonna have this extremely intelligent Hermione type, right? Uh, As the prime driver of the action of the film. And I do think that the movie sidelines her in some ways uh, towards the, the end of the second act that I don't love. However, I think the performance by Rachel Weisz extremely endearing, extremely charming. And the fact that she is the one driving the action throughout the movie is really, really new and really fresh and felt really good to me when I, when I watched this, I don't love the like sexual harassment. I don't love. Oh yeah. There are problems. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't love the treatment of the character by a lot of the other characters in the movie, but I, I really do love her. And I was, I was drawn to her right away. She's extremely magnetic. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point because seeing it in 1999, I was in high school then going back now in 2022 and I was a little jaw dropped by the sexism that this character has to deal with. And the, the one character, the prison guard guy who wants to trade sexual favors to let Rick go. And I'm like, Ooh, that did not age well. You know, that, that part it felt, it felt really slimy, but back in 1999, I guess that, that didn't even rate on my radar. It's like, oh yeah, of course that guy would want sex to let her go. And the miss is like, okay, so maybe this is realistically portraying what would have happened to a woman stepping into this space in this time. But the miss for me is that like the movie doesn't come down really, really hard on those people for treating her in that way. Mm. So that's just what I want as a modern viewer. Um, But I I really, really love her. (laughs) She's a really excellent character. And a thing I was also struck by in reflecting on it The character Rick, when I first saw it, was the character I most identified with. He's a dashing, handsome warrior who can, like, wield guns in tombs. I'm like, oh, yeah, I just love that guy. Looking back now, he really doesn't have much of a character arc. He's pretty much the same character he is at the beginning. Is the same character he is at the end, except now he has a girlfriend. Yeah, I would argue the only real change he undergoes is that he seems a little more out for himself in the beginning. And by the end, he's like, I will do anything to save this girl that I just met. But he was already a warrior who would lay down his life for the cause. And so it makes sense that his new girlfriend, he'd lay his life down. And I think to, to your point, Evelyn is the main character. Yeah, Rick doesn't really need an arc for this movie to work because... She needs the arc. She needs to be the person that ends up getting the uh, the book of um, um, Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra. And she has to translate it to end the curse so that they can all live. In so many parts of the movie, it's her decisions 
that get the characters from one point to the other. And I think yeah. that that is a very innovative thing for an action adventure action adventure movie part of me in 1999. Yeah, she's the one who answers the call to adventure. Rick is a tool to get them to Hamanoptra. Although, honestly, the sexual chemistry between Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, I honestly was like, I need to take a cold shower after this movie because <laughs> it is like, whoa. <laughs> they are amazing together. Yeah. And, and also as well, I don't think, I don't think we talk enough now about how amazing Brendan Fraser was you know he had a period in that time sort of late 90s early 2000s when he was pretty much not everywhere but he was in he was in a lot of movies and and obviously he went through some really terrifying traumatic experiences in Hollywood with like sexual abuse and being blacklisted and all of that stuff and n now you know he's finally kind of getting his his comeback in Hollywood and he's going to be doing some amazing films with like these huge directors. But Brendan Fraser was such a thing back then. And it's almost like we didn't really appreciate how good Brendan Fraser was and what he brings to a role like George of the Jungle, for example. Right, yeah. And act any actor could take that on and just be, you know, dumb, goofy. But he brings so much heart to that character. And I agree in some ways with you, Derek, that, you know, he doesn't have much of a journey. He is literally just there to support Evie. But that feels so revolutionary still that we are still talking about this movie, you know, in 2022, 23 years after this movie was made. And there's nothing like this. There's nothing else that's come out since. Not even the sequels to this movie could, you know, uh, replicate what the original does. And nothing else has come out since that really, to, from, in, in my opinion, really kind of emulates this. This feels unique. And you've got to kind of ask the question, well, why is this unique? Why is it unique to have this woman in this position where she is the leader? She knows everything. And you've basically got the guys just following her around. You know, she saves the day on multiple occasions in this movie. And I don't think that's talked about enough when we're talking about movies like this, because I think that it is a natural thing to kind of focus on the men in movies like this. Well, and uh, if anything, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say in my research for this, I found out that the wiki for the mummy is called Wikipedia. And it's like, I know this is Evie's movie. <laughs> I know. But if, I know. if you and I, Laurel, were in an actual adventure slash supernatural phenomenon that we had to, get out and survive at all costs, you would 100% be the leader. <laughs> I would have the bag full of snacks so that we wouldn't die when we get booby trapped. And I would know the like weird language of the trees that's inscribed on the, on, on the, the panel and I would get us out. I'd solve the puzzle. And like Rick, I'd be like, charge ahead. He'd be like, slow down. There's a booby trap. And I'm like, oh, there is. <laughs> Eat some fruit snacks and think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we agree it holds up really well. The, uh, you know, the, I think anytime you have a movie where it's heavily CGI based and it gets older, the technology changes. So it looks dated that being stated, there are some effects in this movie that I think hold up really well. Like when, um, when oh God, I can't say his name. Imhotep? Imhotep. Imhotep. Thank you. Imhotep is like summoning the sands to attack them when they're in a plane. And the way his face pops out 
of the sands while he's attacking the plane. I thought that still looked beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the, the, the body effects to a varying degree, I think still looked very good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this, cause this was, um, this was the first for industrial light and magic. Cause this was the first fully computer generated character to have full human anatomy. And this was also one of the first, uh, attempts at like full motion capture. So Arnold Vosloo was on set doing motion capture for this character. Um, and, you know, it's like they went to the detail of building a skeleton for Imhotep and then adding individual muscles for Imhotep. So, yes, you could argue that the effects in this movie sometimes do show their age, but I really do feel that Imhotep as a character, the fact that they did at least attempt to blend CG and um, practical effects as well. They got a lot of practical uh, dummies and stuff for the, you know, the ones where they're, the, all of the stuff is sucked out of them. You know, you gotta, you got to love that. Uh, when, when they get this, everything sucked out of them, it's great. Um, crikey, we're going down a road. I don't really want to go down. But anyway, uh, <laughs> this is a family-friendly podcast. Um, Sometimes. But- <laughs> we can make it we can make it R rated if we want. It is our podcast. Yeah, we don't have a producer. <laughs> it's just us. <laughs> but yeah, it's um I think when whenever you're talking about movies from this era, you're ultimately going to get people who will say, Oh, but you know, the CG's not great. And, you know, it's twenty-three years old. You you can't expect a movie from nineteen ninety nine to look like a movie that comes out today. It's it's Technology progresses so quickly, but I think they did the best possible job that they could. And the effects, to me, you know, you could argue that maybe the scarabs under the skin don't look great, but it still induces that feeling of fear because no one wants a bug under their skin. So it still kind of works, even though the effect doesn't look great. It still does what it needs to do to the viewer. And that's what I like. And the fact is that movies like this and movies like the Star Wars prequels uh, and The Abyss are are movies that like maybe if the the effects don't look perfect in their time, they are critical to the development of where they go in the future. So we don't have, you know, we don't have Endgame without the work that's done and the the chances and the ambitions that are are taken in movies like this. And I thought when I saw The Mummy that it was the best special effects movie I had ever seen until I saw um, Fellowship of the Ring. And so, which shortly came out, came out shortly thereafter. But when I saw The Mummy at first, I thought it was the best special effects movie I had ever seen, which tells you that at the time it was very revolutionary. Yeah. And you really do have to judge these things on a sliding scale. You do have to look at the time and the technology and you just did Jason and the Argonauts. Mm -hmm. So many of those effects I think are still brilliant. Do they look like a star Wars movie made in 2022 or a Marvel movie? No, they're not even close, but they still look really good for those times. And you have to put those things in the context of the time. Yeah. And the context of the artist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. So we all think it holds up and we all like it. Yeah. It's not my favorite movie, but I do think it's a great movie. <laughs> I will say the one place where I I was excited to watch this and I was like, oh yeah, it's going to be like tailor-made for me because it's like Indiana Jones, but you like pump up the horror and the supernatural aspect of it. And I don't think that it comes close to, to Raiders. Like honestly, I, I, I think 
the biggest disappointment for me was just like, this is so heavily indebted to Raiders and it's not Raiders. So I, I was like, I, I would rather be watching Raiders, but that's me. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying these movies are akin and you prefer one to the other. If I'm being pressed, I see, I, we don't live in a world where it has to be you, the mummy or one. Raiders. If I'm being yeah. pressed, <laughs> if I had to pick one, I'm on a desert Island and both movies are there. I would probably choose Raiders. It would be hard. It would not be an easy choice, but I probably would, but we don't live in that world. We get to have both and a thing can be beautiful and still within its comparison, you still might think it's not as beautiful as the next thing. If you are walking through a museum and you see a beautiful work of art, and then you look at the next painting, you don't sit there in that museum and say, well, that last painting was more beautiful. You really don't when you do that. You, yeah. you, you look at that new painting, you say that is beautiful too, but in a different way. But for some reason, when we evaluate movies, we have to create hierarchies about which is better, which is worse. And I don't know, I, I don't know why we do that necessarily as fans, but I don't think it's a really productive instinct to say, well, I think, okay, these are, these movies are cousins. They have the same spirit. They have the same soul in many ways. And it's fair to say, I like this one a little more, but I don't think it's worthwhile to really create lists the way that we do. Fair enough. Just total side yeah, tangent. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely fair. And to be honest, I think the vast majority of people, if you gave them that choice between Raiders and the Mummy, I would say the vast majority of people would choose Raiders because it's influential. You know, it's, it is one of the greatest movies ever made. It's on all of the lists. It's well directed. It's well acted. You know, it's it's iconic. It is an iconic movie. But, you know, there's there's a big difference between something that is technically brilliant and something that you love. You can't always choose what or who you love um and for me it's it's well, if if i was given that choice of course i would go for the mummy but like derek's quite succinctly put it um we don't have to choose because we can have it we can have it both ways and that's the brilliance of all of these wonderful movies is you don't have to choose it's not just one or the other you could choose everything and you can watch everything and you can enjoy everything and that's that's fundamentally why Verbal Diorama is here. And it's also fundamentally why the Midnight Myth is here. Because I know as a podcast, you're all about the positivity and all about ultimately being kind. And that's something that I think more moviegoers and more movie lovers, they just need to be a little bit more kind about other stuff, you know, at the end of the day. Because everything is there for you. You don't have to choose. Are you listening, Star Wars fans? Can you hear us? Um, <laughs> That's excellent. That's, yes, exactly. I just while we're on the comparisons to Raiders, the one thing that I will I will give the Mummy is that I think it has a significantly more ethical message in terms of the way that we um, relate to the past and to the archaeological past. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to open a huge can of worms here, but the thing that Indiana Jones is always saying is it belongs in a museum, and like, does it? And by the end of The Mummy, the characters have to relinquish their possession, their like Eurocentric possession of these artifacts that were sacred to a culture and leave them in Hamanoptera. They can't take them with them and then become the possessors of them and lock them away in these elite towers that are 
unrelated to the culture and removed from their context. So it's a small detail, but I do think it is a much more ethical message in terms of how we relate to context, culture, and history. I think that is a really interesting segue point right there. Really? Yeah, because one thing I wanted to talk about, and we're doing a thing, so Egypt doesn't get a lot in popular culture these days. There was a time period where people were really obsessed with ancient Egypt, especially in Western civilization. That was a long time ago. And so when ancient Egypt comes up, I do get a little special love. So everyone who listens knows that I'm the history guy. Ancient Egypt was my gateway into ancient history. It was because I loved all things ancient Egypt that I wanted to study ancient history. And from that lens, I want to talk about a few things. One, we're going to talk about what actually were mummies. Why did they exist? Why did the ancient Egyptians mummify them? And I want to talk about how the discovery of Egyptology and how that, how that science, that uh, historical science developed how that ended up relating to and ultimately forming Egypt narratives in pop culture. Is that okay with, with both of you? Take it Absolutely. away, Derek. Go yeah. for it. So a few things. Ancient Egyptian history is very, very ancient. The ancient Egyptian history is, starts around 6,000 BC. Some have argued that there are some relics that may date back as far as 10,000 BC, which is right around the agricultural revolution when humans stopped being hunter-gatherers and started being farmers, and that is when civilizations were born. Because we stopped being hunter-gatherers, we started being farmers, which meant we had plenty. We had things left over. At the end of the harvest, we had extra food, so you needed a government to decide who gets what food and when, and that's where civilization comes from. So we're talking about one of the most ancient of ancient civilizations. If you want to get an idea of how ancient ancient Egypt is, we all have heard of Cleopatra, correct? Yes. We are closer in date to Cleopatra than Cleopatra is to the building of the pyramids. What? Yes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that is how ancient ancient Egyptian society is. We're talking about one of the oldest civilizations. Because ancient Egyptians, one, were very obsessed seemingly with death and rebirth, and they're in a desert climate, so much of ancient Egyptian relics and antiquities have survived. Part of that is because the ancient Egyptians believed very much that you could take it with you. How ancient Egyptian society works, and it is a thousands of years of history, so this is going to be a gross simplification. The pharaoh who is living is a living god. The pharaoh is Horus in the flesh. And then when the pharaoh dies, the pharaoh then becomes Osiris in death. And by the pharaoh living and dying, the Nile will be guaranteed to flood. When the Nile floods, it deposits uh, minerals into the soil, which allow the ancient Egyptians to farm. One of the reasons historians guess that the ancient Egyptians had such longevity to their civilization was because they based it around the Nile. And when other periods of the world were having famine because they didn't get rain, they had the Nile depositing minerals into their soil so that they could keep farming on the same farmlands. A lot of crops such as wheat are soil depleting, meaning 
There's not enough minerals in the soil to grow time after time after time. Well, the Nile's just depositing minerals onto the soil. So the Pharaoh, Horus in life, dies and becomes Osiris in death, guarantees the reflooding of the Nile, which lets the ancient Egyptians have food. This is central to their belief system. How does this happen? Mummification. The pharaoh must be mummified and buried in precise ways. So the mummy would be the removal of the organs from the bodies, and they're placed in things called canoptic jars. And we see them actually in the, um, in the movie The Mummy. They have them, these little jars. Sometimes they'll have a monkey or an alligator on them, and they place the organs in there. They wrap the body up so the body can be preserved, and the body must remain intact so the pharaoh can transition from Horus to Osiris. Everything put in the tombs, the pharaoh gets to take with them to the afterlife. Now, not just pharaohs were mummified. Mummifying is a business in the ancient world. So if you have, in the ancient Egyptian world, if you have enough money, you can pay to be mummified, which means you can get to the afterlife. No, no mummification, no afterlife. So if you don't have the money to do it, if you don't have the money to be mummified, you don't get to get to the afterlife. Very bleak for the poor people of ancient Egypt. Yeah. It's one of the reasons Christianity works so well, by the way. Total side tangent. Everyone gets access to the afterlife? Yeah, elevates the poor. What? You don't have to just be rich? But anyway, uh, side tangent. Um, So mummies were the way to ensure that the body could make it to the afterlife and... In the tombs, you can have tons of things. Everything with you can come with you. So pharaohs were very wealthy, some of the most wealthiest people of ancient Egypt. So they had a lot of things in these tombs. So that's what mummies were. The idea of a mummy being a curse or coming back to life to haunt something is completely alien to everything we know about ancient Egyptian religion. There's no evidence anywhere to suggest they thought mummies would ever resurrect and then go out there and start hunting the living. So how did that come to be? So we got to walk through some broad strokes of history. Ancient Egyptian history ends when the Romans conquer Egypt at the death of Cleopatra. That's when historians say ancient Egypt ends and now Hellenistic Egypt begins. As the Romans ruled over ancient Egypt, they started Hellenizing, meaning they got a little more Greek, they got a little more Roman. The official language of ancient Egypt was already starting to shift towards Greek anyway before then. So the ancient Egyptian language that the hieroglyphics are in starts to not be practiced. Then we have the rise of Christianity in Rome, and then ancient Egypt becomes a Christian nation, so they're not practicing these ancient Egyptian rituals. They're not practicing these ancient Egyptian mummification practices. They're not praying to the same Egyptian gods, the belief that the Pharaoh is, you know, Horus and then Osiris is gone. And then around 671, I have the date written down. That could be a little off. Then a thing called Islam comes and conquers ancient Egypt. When Islam conquers ancient Egypt, that's the death nail. And any remnants of ancient Egyptian paganism are finally completely snuffed out. It was already almost gone. But then Islam, establishing a central state, Islamic caliphates in ancient Egypt, they have a unique relationship to ancient paganism, different to the medieval, we're now in the medieval era, the medieval Christians, who were kind of like, they saw themselves the descendant of the ancient pagans. They liked to read Latin. They knew who the, the ancient deities were. 
Islam really wanted to purge these things completely. So the idea of talking about or learning or studying anything to do with the ancient Egyptian pagan religion is completely illegal and totally disappears. The ancient Egyptian religion, the ancient Egyptian language are completely gone until 1798, a long fricking time. So what happens in 1798? Napoleon Bonaparte conquers Egypt. Napoleon discovers something called the Rosetta Stone. No idea what it is, and he sells it to the British. The British then start studying it. And what the Rosetta Stone is, it's the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic language, ancient Greek, and there's another language on it. I forget which one it is. It might be Canoptic. And it has the text in all three languages. This meant that Western European scholars were able to finally learn the ancient Egyptian language. Before that, what people believed hieroglyphics were, were spells. They didn't think it was a language, but it turned out it is an actual language. So now by 17, so I'm sorry, by 1805, there's Muhammad Ali is the leader of ancient Egypt, and he gives Western Europeans carte blanche, come out, dig up whatever graves you can find. Most ancient Egyptian tombs have been robbed centuries ago. But so now there's a whole crop of Westerners going, they're part scholars and they're part adventurers, looking for ancient Egyptian antiquities, trying to discover them. Some know the language, some want to get rich. There's a huge market for ancient Egyptian antiquities at this time. And then by 1820s, the hieroglyphic language is completely and totally translated. So now everybody is starting to get obsessed with ancient Egyptian language. The actual field of Egyptology comes from Napoleon discovering the Rosetta Stone and Westerners in Western academic circles becoming obsessed with ancient Egypt, not the modern, the at the time, the contemporary Egyptians. They believed all of this stuff was evil and bad. So the, the thing that we see in the mummy is all of these Westerners driving all this Egyptology. That is very historically accurate, actually. And now, how do we get to mummies as these like weird ghosts, ghosts and ghouls? This is very interesting. So there's the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. It is the first Egyptian tomb discovered ever that wasn't already robbed, meaning all of the stuff, all of the treasure was actually intact. This happened in 1922. And Key year for the mummy, 1999. Correct. Which takes place in 23, right? And uh, yeah. yes, it does. Yeah. So Tutankhamun's discovery and then the, the taking of Tutankhamun's treasures and the, they started showing them throughout all the Western world led to what's called Egyptomania which is an obsession with ancient Egypt that had been kind of bubbling under the surface for a while, then explodes. But here is some interesting things that happened. People started to believe that Tutankhamun's treasure was cursed. And the reason for that is the people that discovered it all started dying in mysterious circumstances. Now, some historical facts. There are no Egyptian curses written anywhere in his tomb. So there's no like historical basis that it was, but the victims of the curse, these are all people who found Tutankhamun's tomb. Prince Ali Kama Feme Bey of Egypt was shot dead in his wife. 
by his wife, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, um, who x-rayed the mummy, died mysteriously in 1924. No one even knows why. Sir Lee Stack, the governor general of Sudan, was assassinated in Cairo in 1924. Arthur Mace of Carter's excavation team. Carter was the main uh, Egyptologist. He died of arsenic poisoning in 1928. And the secretary of it um, was smothered in his bed in 1929. And then shortly thereafter, his father committed suicide in 1930. So this unprecedented death toll that happened after the discovery of Tutankhamun... Within 10 years, yeah. ...led people to believe there was a curse, which is the direct inspiration for 1932's The Mummy. The idea of that movie was, hey, everyone's into Egypt, Egyptomania's at its height, and Tutankhamun's treasure supposedly cursed. Why don't we take this idea and we turn it into a movie where there is a mummy that actually comes back because the mummy's cursed and starts to kill people. Isn't it fun watching him just do that? I mean, do you know what? <laughs> this is why I listen to The Midnight Myth. This exactly is why I listen, because I didn't know why they created mummies. I didn't know it was to do with, you know, going to the afterlife and, you know, the wealthier you were, the more likely you were to be mummified. I don't know what I thought mummification was. I genuinely just thought it was a thing. But this is why I listen to The Midnight Myth, to get this amazing, you know, just and literally, I'm, listeners, I'm watching Derek. I'm watching him on camera. He's just reeling all this stuff off. He's not like reading a script. This is all just coming from Derek. This is incredible stuff. I think he like checked a date in his notes once and that's it. That was just all off the top of your head. Well, you've got to understand, I have been obsessed with ancient Egyptian history for a very, very long time. I've been into ancient Egyptian history. I've studied it on an undergraduate level. We have a copy of a papyrus of the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead, something they mentioned in this, which is in mm -hmm. every ancient Egyptian tomb is a version of the Book of the Dead, which details how what happens when you die, how you get mummified, and then what happens in the afterlife, which is also something used in um, Moon Knight in the new Marvel show. They talk about Love the Egyptian- Yes, it was great. It. Yeah, 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 it was it was phenomenal. Another time where ancient Egyptian comes up. I mean, there are some things about the mummy that I think are worth quibbling about in the way it characterizes the ancient Egyptian history. Mummification would never be done as a punishment, nor would you curse someone that had died and try to give them special magic powers should they be resurrected after death. All of that feels a little orientalizing them, that their death rituals are barbaric and, and harsh in the ancient Egyptian. And whether or not we think they're barbaric or not, they were really well thought out, practiced for thousands, and I mean thousands of years. You know, they've been doing mummification longer than Christians have been burying the dead, believing they'd be resurrected with the return of Christ. So there've been more, more, for a longer period of time, I don't know about more percentage of population, but mummification has existed for a longer period of time than our current death rituals. And they play a little fast and loose with that, but it comes from a place of Westerners becoming obsessed with ancient Egypt. Egyptology being a Western academic-driven discipline. There's finally been, over the last like 30 years, a push of Egyptology being run by Egyptians. 
There is a massive museum of Egypt antiquities in Cairo. So the idea that, you know, the ancient Egypt, the modern Egyptians have no connection to it has changed dramatically. But for a long period of time, most of ancient Egypt was buried under the sand and nobody went looking for it until a bunch of treasure seekers, grave robbers and scholars all got together and decided, let's go find some antiquities. And very much like what we see in this movie. That was something that I really didn't know anything about, the fact that the connection between the modern Egyptian and their history had been severed by, uh, you know, a, a theocracy. And I think that's really interesting. And I I, I want to learn more about the contemporary efforts to reunite that context, reunite that cultural context with the people. I think that's fascinating and an interesting uh, revisionist history. I think it's it's fascinating. And it poses, we've talked about this in our Indiana Jones episode, it poses modern ethical questions when you have so many of ancient Egyptian antiquities. For example, we live in Philadelphia. In the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology is the largest, one of the largest preserved sphinxes. It's a 10-ton sphinx. I've seen it several times. And the question therein is that okay? One of the largest collections of ancient, ancient Egyptian antiquities ever, ever, is in Britain in the... Um, the British Museum. Yeah, which we, when we went to London, I'm like, we've got to go see the Egyptian antiquities. And, and the, the Rosetta Stone, yeah. And we saw the Rosetta Stone in London, which is phenomenal. One of the best ancient Egyptian exhibits I've ever seen but the question therein, is it okay for having so many of these antiquities in Western museums when it came from an era of colonialism, disinterest by the local population, and, you know, should these be circling themselves back? And who actually owns these antiquities? But you see, I have them, and I'm not going to give them back to you. They are mine now. And But, I mean... On the flip side, it's because of Western interest in ancient Egypt that there is Egyptology, that there is even a, you know, if the Rosetta Stone hadn't been discovered, people still would not know what hieroglyphics were and what they meant. And it was from Western academic discipline that Egyptology exists. So, I, I mean, I see both sides here. I don't think it's an easy one-for-one. One, and I know it is very... Um, it's very convenient in liberal, uh, educated liberal American circles to be like, colonialism is evil and send everything back. I just don't think it's that simple. No, it's certainly not that simple. There is deep intricacy and, and complexity and, quite frankly, irony in that. I think that's really interesting. So thank you for that. I wanted to jump onto the uh, the question of the development of the inspiration for the 1932 mummy. And M, you might know some of this, but I found some really fascinating fun facts in my research that I was not expecting to find with relationship to the 1932 original mummy. And I think they inform kind of the way we watch the mummy in 1999 in unexpected ways. And that's that a major figure who has a lot of sway over our contemporary understanding of the mummy is none other than Bram Stoker, the writer of Dracula. So in 1922, you're saying King Tut's tomb was unearthed, but back in 1903, a few years after he had written Dracula, Bram Stoker wrote a book called The Jewel of Seven Stars, which features a female mummy 
slash sorceress who is seeking resurrection after death. So certainly has some echoes in what we see in Anaxunamun and the relationship with Imhotep. And in 1931, Universal had adapted Dracula into a film and they had just like blown up. It was just an outrageous success. So a couple years later, they're trying to capitalize on this success. They're like, what's done well for us? Let's make another monster movie. We have this star in Boris Karloff who just also made us a bunch of money in Frankenstein. So they decide to make a mummy film. And that film clearly lifts some ideas from Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars, a female mummy being resurrected by her lover, Imhotep. So even though a lot of the details are rearranged, I think it is, I think you could make a case that it is an unauthorized adaptation of this Bram Stoker novel, though they wouldn't have directly adapted it because people had gotten in lots of trouble for making Nosferatu, which was an unauthorized uh, adaptation of Dracula. So this was just a really interesting thing that got my mind going because Bram Stoker, as responsible as anyone for our modern conception of the vampire, is also... Uh, not recognized for being highly responsible for our understanding of the contemporary mummy. And one thing that I, I also just, I made this connection, I don't know if anybody else has seen this, I don't know if I'm reaching, but the fact that in the 1932 mummy, Imhotep is seeking resurrection for his lover and then meets this modern woman and thinks she is the resurrected version of his of his dead lover, that was I mean it's it's Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford yeah. Coppola like that's Dracula yeah. seeing Mina and thinking she is the resurrected Elisabetta so I was like is Coppola paying homage to this like lost history of Bram Stoker originating the mummy so that's just a like movie history tangent that I had a lot of fun going down um and I I just want to throw some recognition on Mr. Stoker well it's all connected there's no, there are very few like true original ideas. Everything builds off of everything else. And the fact that Bram Stoker kind of has his hands in the mummy is super cool. Yeah. And em, I know you gave us some really wonderful uh, insight into the, the actual revolutionariness of the effects, but I want to give you some space too, now that we're talking about the development of the film and the inspiration for the film to talk to us about some of that history and legacy. Talk to us about some of the things in this movie that really set it apart as a production. Well, it is a really interesting story in a sense that, you know, it does take so much from that 1932 movie. It's not a straight remake because it is updated for a more modern audience. It is a, a different movie. And I'll admit, I've not seen the 1932 original. Neither but, have I, to be honest, yeah. But from what I've read, and, you know, mainly online, I'll be honest, um, is that it, it's reasonably kind of faithful to the concept of that original movie. And, and the idea to do a sort of modern monster movie actually came about um, from... In a, in a roundabout way, from do you remember the movie Babe? Yes, the the pig. So um, actually, so, before you even get into this, James Cromwell, who plays Babe's master, came into the restaurant that I worked in one time, and he was ordering from me, and I it took all of my self control to not be like, 
Is that it, sir? Will that do? Anyway, go on. <laughs> he was lovely. Go on, babe. Yeah, I, no, I bet he was. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically, I'll, I'll come back to, I'll, I'll swing back around to babe. But so the idea for a kind of remaking The Mummy came around originally in 1992. Um, and so they wanted to make this um, remake, but they wanted it to be quite low budget. Because obviously they didn't really have the money. So originally they said they wanted it to be about $10 million. And even, you know, you can't make a movie now for $10 million. It just doesn't happen. Um, but they originally went to uh, Clive Barker. And anyone who's not listening, uh, not listening? No, that makes no sense because people are listening. <laughs> hopefully, anyone hopefully. No, hopefully. Anyone who doesn't know who Clive Barker is. So he's responsible for movies like Hellraiser. Um, you know, very kind of visceral, gory horror movies. Um, and he wrote and directed Hellraiser. And I'm going to do an episode on Hellraiser one day because I think that movie is fascinating. Please call but me he... for that one. I wrote a paper on Hellraiser in college. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes, I will definitely speak to you about Hellraiser. Um, but anyway, by the by, um, so they contacted Clive Barker. And unsurprisingly, Clive Barker's vision was very dark, very violent, very sexual, uh, which kind of makes sense when you're looking at Hellraiser um and um and so eventually they were like this isn't going to work we don't want a movie like Clive Barker is suggesting so they actually then went to Joe Dante who's probably most famous for Gremlins and um and his idea was for the mummy character to be played by Daniel Day-Lewis and I cannot see Daniel Day-Lewis as Imhotep ever but it was kind of this brooding contemporary love story that was kind of the, the, the idea for this mummy movie. Um, and so that's kind of where the love story element kind of comes from, although it is, it is present, obviously, in the 1932, but it was wanted more emphasis on this love story. Um, and some of Joe Dante's ideas included, like, flesh-eating scarabs and stuff like that. Um, but at that point, the budget was $15 million. And that idea would have completely blown that budget. So they said to Joe Dante, look, sorry, we love Gremlins, but no, we're not going to go there. So then they went to George A. Romero. And obviously, you know, it's like this story is like full of some of the greatest directors that have ever existed. And George A. Romero is obviously Night of the Living Dead. You know, he is the zombie man. Um, and so that his, his, his script was like tragic romance, you know, and going back to like the Dracula element of this tragic romance. And, but then his script was too dark and violent too. So clearly Universal didn't want a supremely violent horror movie. They wanted, they wanted that genre mix. They wanted all of these elements to work together. Um, and then it's Wes Craven then got involved. So it's literally like who's who of horror directors. Um, and Wes Craven ended up turning it down because it kind of wasn't his thing at the time. Um, and obviously by this point, um, it was probably around about Scream time because it was probably around 96, 95, 96 when Wes Craven was involved. And then obviously he did Scream and that was completely different. And the completely rest is kind history. Of, yeah, literally that is the movie that he's known for pretty much. Um, and so basically these two producers back in 92, they were called James Jackson, Sean Daniel. And so they were the ones who were kind of pushing this project forward at Universal. And Stephen Summers, who would go on to direct The Mummy, he actually contacted Jackson Daniel uh, in 97, I believe it was, with his idea for The Mummy. 
Um, and he envisaged it as Indiana Jones that meets Jason and the Argonauts, like this swashbuckling romance, you know, where you've got this hero who's like trying to face down all these monsters. And it's kind of ironic, really, because we've talked about Indiana Jones and Jason of the Ar- uh, and the Argonauts in this episode, but it was basically uh, a mix of that. And he wanted the mummy to be this kind of foreboding creature that likes constantly giving the hero a headache, you know, it's constantly can't be stopped. Um, and, um, and what it was going back to Babe. So when Babe came out, Babe was a huge hit. And then we got a sequel, which is called Babe Pig in the City, um, which I think is very fondly remembered. Um, it's one of those movies that I think the Babe and its sequel are really fondly remembered. They're great movies for families. Um, but ultimately Babe Pig in the City was a box office failure. Because Babe came out of nowhere and then they released Babe Pig in the City and it didn't do so well. And so Universal's management basically had a change of direction because of the financial failure of Babe Pig in the City. Um, And so they kind of ended up going back to the mummy because they were like, look, we've got these Universal horror movies in our repertoire. You know, talking about things like the mummy, you know, the Wolfman, all of these characters going back uh, in including Dracula, I mean, well, Dracula was public domain anyway, so anyone can make a Dracula movie, it doesn't matter, but Universal ended up going back to Stephen Summers, and he'd obviously pitched this huge, like, romantic adventure, horror thing that blended all these genres together, and originally they'd obviously said $15 million tops, but because of Babe Pig in the City, they were like, look, we need something that's going to reinvigorate Universal, we're going to go back to our monster movies that was so popular back in like the 30s and 40s. And so they basically said to Stephen Summers, look, we will give you $80 million to make this movie. And so basically that's how The Mummy came about, was it essentially came from the failure of Babe Pig in the City. How amazing is that? That is truly, <laughs> truly you would amazing. Never think, <laughs> you would never think that Babe Pig in the City would Give us the mummy. But it did. And we have to be so thankful to Babe Pig in the City for that. I am thankful to Babe Pig in the City for that. <laughs> the movie business is so freaking weird. <laughs> I know. It's so fickle. And literally things get made from like the strangest of circumstances. You would not believe. It's incredible. Finding out the stuff that I do about movies. And sometimes I sit here and I'm just like, how? What? Who? You know, it's it's genuinely that response. And that story is fascinating because like part of me is like, show me Wes Craven's The Mummy, like give me Clive Barker's The Mummy. But also at the heart of this, there is someone who loves the story and deeply wanted to make this movie who was like, Mm -hmm. please let me put my hat in the ring. Please let me give you my script. And I think that love does come through. Like it is a movie that feels like a labor of love for the people involved. Yeah, so every movie is is a business it's designed to make money but i and i i could be naive since i've never actually worked in that business but you can feel the difference between i think a movie that's a cynical cash grab and a movie that is made by a crew and a storyteller that really really want to bring this thing to life and the mummy is definitely looks like and feels like a labor of love rather than let's just make a bunch of money for universal I want to come back to Evie for just a moment because there's something I've been meditating on with everything that we've been talking about and particularly with the line of like Egyptology then 
Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars, 1932's The Mummy, 1999's The Mummy, 2017's The Mummy. And there's a through line that runs through this that is frequently the um, the monster, the monstrous mummy, um, if you don't count Imhotep, is a feminine force, is a female mummy, is a woman who is monstrous and who should not be brought to life lest she wreak some havoc on on the the country. I think Imhotep and Anaxinamun and her avatars um, are are this this pair of this. But the monstrous woman uh, is is a recurring theme. In 1999's The Mummy, we see Evie tied down and her body about to be possessed by Anaxinamun, and like that being the ultimate like tearing away of her bodily autonomy and identity. And I think it's just interesting to reflect on the portrayals of gender throughout these different adaptations or these different interpretations of the mummy, female sexuality often portrayed in those earlier um, stories and even to today as monstrous or as scary or as villainous. And then Evie as the, as the charm, as the like love, as the heart of this movie is this very, um, very opposing presentation of womanhood as opposed to the mummy, as opposed to the mistress, as opposed to uh, the object of Imhotep's desires. It's just something I've been meditating on. I think uh, I think there are problems there, but there are also great like discoveries there. Um, the, the idea of the the sexually liberated woman and the uh, coded as much more pure um, intellectual pursuit, covered up woman. It's just an interesting. Um, it's an interesting opposition I've been observing. Hmm. Anyway, that's a that's a that's a interesting point. So the problem, if I understand your point, is that Evie is coded non-sexed versus um, Imhotep's uh, Anaximun is being coded as overly sexual. Right. And that she, Emotep's, uh, you know, main squeeze has to take the body of Evie as problematic because it's demonizing women's sexuality. Do I take that point right? Right. And we have to stop that, that sexually liberated woman from becoming fully realized because she is monstrous. That's an interesting take on this movie. Wow. Yeah, I I'd never thought of that before, genuinely. That that's completely new to me. The idea that you have like the pure innocent woman and you don't want her to turn into the overly sexual being that someone like Anuxunamun represents because she's the mistress. She's the she's the character that is not allowed to be touched by another man and when she lets another man touch her, she's the property of um seti and she's not allowed to make her own choices she is she's basically the 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 character who is she has the will of man forced upon her right she has to be the the sexual being of um of seti if she, she chooses to be with another man but she's not allowed to she can't have that bodily autonomy so right. in a way it's it, it's kind of ironic really that she doesn't have Anuxanamun doesn't have the body autonomy. She is not allowed to be in control of her own body, of her own femininity, of her own sexuality. And yet, when it comes to Imhotep resurrecting his love, he has to use a human sacrifice who is a woman 
who then, because she is a human sacrifice, then she does not have bodily autonomy. That's a really interesting point, Laurel, that I had not thought about before. Yeah, you know, and and looking just even at the way that they are, that they perform femininity, looking at the way that these characters are dressed or not dressed, looking at Anuxinamun who is wearing full body paint and Evie who wears veils and lace and proper, you know, 1923 attire for a woman, maybe not proper for going tomb raiding, but, uh, you know, socially acceptable. Um, and I do think that exchange of bodily autonomy is something that's really interesting for me. And it's, it's so interestingly ironic because Evie is a character who has the most will, who has the most determination and who has the most agency in this movie. She just doesn't have, uh, as much agency over her body. She is locked in a room. She is, uh, forcibly kissed. She is tied down and becomes a damsel in distress to be rescued by Rick as she is being sacrificed by Imhotep. It's just a really interesting irony, I think, because we have a really powerful presentation of a a great woman character in an action-adventure movie that's unexpected, and yet she still falls into these traps. Really interesting. You know, it kind of reminds me of Cleopatra in history. And if you wouldn't permit me just to pepper in some history to this. Talk about Cleopatra, please. Yeah. So Cleopatra is the last Egyptian pharaoh. By the way, the term pharaoh is a little bit of a misnomer. Pharaoh means residence of the king. So when you are saying pharaoh, you are saying that's where the king lives. Yeah, it's like you're saying White House. So when we 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 do this already, so the White House, yeah. you may not know him, but you will see a news story where it says the White House says they are proposing a, a bill to do blah blah blah. Yeah, the White House has issued a statement, but they're really saying that's very President much Biden. the, the yeah. term pharaoh. By the time what's called the New Kingdom, which is where we start this movie, is the word pharaoh has become kind of synonymous with the personhood of the king, and because the New Kingdom is the most powerful, richest aspect of ancient Egyptian history. It kind of goes backwards to the pharaohs before, but they were technically, they'd never called themselves pharaoh. That would be calling themselves house. You know, I'm not (laughs) going to call myself my house, but it does eventually (laughs) become the term for king. Um, Total side tangent. So Cleopatra is the last Egyptian pharaoh. She lived in a time when Rome was at its most powerful it Rome is on the verge of becoming a full military imperial monarchy. And Cleopatra ends up seducing, according to the Roman sources, two Roman men, first being Julius Caesar. And she has a son with Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar then becomes dictator for life, gets assassinated, dies. And then it's Mark Anthony, who is a general for Julius Caesar, has a bunch of kids with Mark Anthony. And Cleopatra ends up being, she ends up killing herself after Mark Anthony is defeated at the Battle of Actium and realizing that Rome is now going to completely control Egypt. She chooses to kill herself as opposed to living at completely under the thumb of Rome, which is in the ancient world actually considered noble. In our world, we'd probably consider that cowardly, like you've got to live with the bed you, you, you made. But in the ancient world, if things are really bad, a noble suicide is considered the best thing to do. All that being stated, what we know about Cleopatra comes from the Roman sources that were written after her death by 
Augustus's historians, Augustus is the person who defeated Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, and they talk about her as a sorceress, as a seductress, as someone who would like take in great Roman men and drag them down to their like very lowest depths and ruin them. The whole pretext for the war between Augustus and at the time he was Octavian, then he changed his name to Augustus between Augustus and Mark Anthony was that Mark Anthony was too close to this Egyptian sorceress who is Egyptianizing him. And the whole idea of Cleopatra, she was one of the most influential and brilliant pharaohs in a very difficult political time. She became the pharaoh after a civil war with her brother. So she's a a literal conqueror of Egypt. And she gets demonized because her power had to be linked to men in order for it to be maintained. And she chose the wrong side on a civil war that was doomed to lost and hence gets demonized in history, a reputation that exists till today. You think of Cleopatra, HBO series Rome, if you've ever seen it, has Cleopatra as this like seductress and she's like addicted to drugs and all these things. And here's this brilliant historical woman who in many ways we should probably be celebrating. I mean, every single person of power in the ancient world is deeply problematic. They're all brutal murderers, right? Like they would all have no problem cutting off the hands of an innocent child if it meant maintaining power, right? So like they're not good people, but she was a brilliant, brilliant woman who gets all of these because she has sex with Roman men who end up dying. She gets end up being attached as this person who just ruins these great Western men. And meanwhile, she is preserved in literature, particularly through Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, as one of the great doomed tragic love stories of all time. So, But Shakespeare is drawing upon yeah. the, the historical record that was already there. Right. When he, so like he's taking what was already written and then he's dramatizing it. But there had already been so many countless, and I've read them, right? So many countless just take down, historical takedown pieces of Cleopatra. Oh my God. Do you know what I was just going to say? Uh, you guys haven't done an episode on the epic Cleopatra, have you? No, the we four have hour not. Best epic. Oh my God. I've not seen Cleopatra. It's something that I do want to see, but I would be really interested to actually hear more about Cleopatra, sort of, I'm not suggesting that you guys do an episode because it's up to you what you do. But yeah, I mean, I would love it's to a space where Patrick. Derek is clearly very comfortable. And I don't know where this is in the development pipeline at, uh, at, at this point, but the Gal Gadot um, Cleopatra is still happening, right? I don't know. Well, I I don't, no, I don't there might know. be a new Cleopatra have, in the next year. Or I two, have so. no idea. That'd be a good catalyst. Though to Cleopatra, once you dig into who she was, how powerful she was, and what she did and how she was demonized for what she did. It is a very interesting piece of, of history. And, but to your point, it's all about her using sex as a way to gain power over Roman men. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Yeah. M plug all of your plugs. Oh my God. Oh my God. This has been amazing. Genuinely. I feel like every time I listen to The Midnight Myth, I learn something. And I feel like I've learned so much from coming onto The Midnight Myth and talking about The Mummy. Because I I know about The Mummy and I love The Mummy, but I don't know ancient Egyptian history at all. Uh, I only know what's 
what's out there? You know, when you go to a museum and you see ancient Egyptian artifacts, I don't know the history of those artifacts and why they're there, why they're there and where they came from and all of that stuff. So this has been genuinely one of the most fascinating guest appearances that I've ever done. And I am genuinely such a huge fan of you guys that I, I'm just so delighted that we managed to get this done because I know that you guys are so busy. You've got all of these podcasts that you're doing. You've got Arthur to consider. And so the fact that this has all come together just anyway is kind of miraculous, really. But it's been amazing. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Truly. The feeling is mutual. Thank you so much. I feel like we we had to make this happen. And so like the stars, the stars have aligned for us. And I'm very, very yeah. glad. Yeah. Yeah. Because this has come together quite quickly as well. And it's genuinely only because I've had some time off this week and I've been able to catch up on some things. And yeah, I'm I was so delighted to get that message from you to say, please come on. Or, yeah, I was you like, know, if you shot can't, in the dark. Then, yeah. <laughs> shot shoot. in the dark. All, We're dropping Arthur in the dark. off. <laughs> <laughs> always shoot in the dark with me. And if I can come onto the Midnight Myth, I will absolutely come onto the Midnight Myth anytime you want me because, yeah, oh, you guys are incredible and I love what you do. And yeah, sorry, you wanted me to plug. And all yes. I'm doing is basically saying well, we'll how amazing it. you are. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, this this has been so much fun. And um, yeah, anyone who wishes to find Verbal Diorama or follow Verbal Diorama, um, I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, VerbalDiorama.com. Um, yeah, come and, come and find me. Um, listen to some episodes if you want. And um, yeah, find me on social media and talk to me about the mummy because this is a movie that I can talk a lot about. And if, if we had more time, then there's so much more I could talk about with this movie because I love it so much. But yeah, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Derek and Laurel, for having me. Honestly, just amazing. And, and I'll say this, your podcast is amazing, but so is your Twitter. It is a really, it is a place of joy and celebration of film. And it's part of the reason I love your podcast. And you always take what people, what you will post on Twitter, open forum, if you want to comment, I'll read it on my podcast. That is unbelievably brave. And you always <laughs> do it. And it and the crazy thing is, is that it really works. No one will post on your thing and just try to take down a piece. Everyone just posts positive and hopeful things about the movies that they love. And it's a really amazing thing that you're doing over there with a uh, verbal diorama. I genuinely love your show. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's not all it's not always positive, I'll be honest. Some people some people do like to share when they don't like something, but I'm, I feel very fortunate because I feel like social media can be a really toxic place and there's a lot of cruel, nasty people just everywhere, just generally in life. But I think they come out on social media more often than we would like. But I feel very fortunate in, the, in this whole kind of verbal diorama journey. I've been doing this for a little over three years now and the majority of responses and comments and you know interaction that I get is so overwhelmingly positive it actually gives me a little bit of hope for the future of civilization and humanity that there are wonderful people in the world um and I've I found that through podcasting I found that from talking to po other podcasters like yourselves there is so much positivity out there in the world um it's easy to focus on the negative just as it is to focus on the toxicity of certain fandoms on the internet. 
But I think overall people are kind and they're nice. And that's really the only major experience that I've had. I've had a couple of slightly negative things that have happened, but overall, like 99.5% pure positivity and love and joy. And honestly, I'm, I'm all here for it. I, I, love, I love doing what I do. So um, yeah, it's just really nice. It kind of does give you hope. It really does, yeah. Sometimes it's really difficult when there's so many awful things going on in the world. Sometimes you just desperately need a little bit of hope. And I feel like the podcast community is all about spreading the joy and spreading the love. And, and like you guys, spreading the message of just being kind. Just be kind, guys, you know. Not you guys. I'm talking to everyone in general because I know you guys are kind. But yeah, that's all people well, need to do. I mean, I say be kind at the end of every episode but it is a reminder to myself because it is easy. It is easy to slip into cynicism and anger. Mm -hmm. It's easy to take your frustrations out on another person. I say be kind because I need to remind myself in particular when I'm not always being kind, I'm like, no, my motto is to be kind because the world can be a dark place, but through the podcasting community, I, I totally echo those sentiments. I've met so many amazing people we just by hanging out on your Twitter comments, I've met other podcasts that I've become really good friends with. Like Andy and Mike, I love those dudes. Oh, I love them. They're amazing. And they do. Yeah, Geek listen Salad. to Geek Salad. They're phenomenal. And I remember at one point just chatting with Andy on Twitter, and I'm like, dude, you do a podcast. I do a podcast. Like, hold on, let's like let let's connect, let's network. And it's just been phenomenal. Absolutely. I should say, I didn't say this at the top, but we recently did a guest spot on Garden of Doom that just went live a couple days ago. So uh, check out Garden of Doom with Jeff. We got to talk at some length about Greek mythology and of all things, Popeye the Sailor Man. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and check out that guest spot. It is, it's rare that we find time to do those, but when we do, it really is so rewarding and it's so great to get to know people and and share knowledge and, and learn from each other. So exactly in, in that vein, thank you so much, Em. This really was outstanding. I, I'm so, so happy we were able to make it happen. And I hope people enjoy these kind of myriad takes on the mummy. And oh, until, absolutely. <laughs> and until next time, everyone, be kind. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind.